Welcome to Elementary Talks, the podcast that connects marketing, design, and development experts to help you build better websites. Nir Eyal is the author of the bestseller, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. In our podcast, he describes his model for creating products that hook the customers, explain why he wrote his upcoming book from a customer perspective, and reveals a productivity hack that actually saved his sex life. Another episode of Elementor Talks, and today I have a really interesting guest that I'm so psyched to have uh, on the show. It's Nir Eyal, and uh, the best-selling author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and uh, Nir also taught at Stanford Graduate School, and he writes for Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, TechCrunch, Psychology Today, and all in all, he's considered today one of the biggest experts on habit-forming. So hi, Nir. Hi, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm sure I'm uh, one of the only interviews that got your name uh, pronounced right, right? Wow, you said it so well. <laughs> I, so, yeah, so I, I have a super Israeli name, even though I'm very American. I, I left Israel when I was three years old. So <laughs> it's been a long time since I lived there. So I think the topic that you're considered expert on, you were on the right time, on the right, in the right place, on the right time, because that's one of the hottest topics today, right? Yeah, it's kind of funny to think funny to think that I wrote this book five years ago when and I started writing it seven years ago, but it was published five years ago. And at the time, you know, nobody was thinking that you could design products that would be this sticky, that would be this engaging, you know, that now we have in the public discourse, this idea that that technology is addictive, right? That was not anybody's problem back when I got started. And I wrote the book because I couldn't find the answer for how to do this. You know, I, I had a hypothesis for what I wanted to do next in my career. I had helped start two tech companies that both got sold. And uh, I had some time on my hands and I was trying to figure out what to do next with my time. And I had this hypothesis that habits were really going to matter, that as the interface shrinks from desktop to laptop to mobile devices to now wearables and now to you know, audible devices like, like uh, Amazon Echo and um, you know, Siri and, and these devices that you can talk to, as the interface shrank, that I, I believe that habits would become more important because you know, if, if the end user doesn't remember to use your product, if you're not the, the, you know, on, the, on the user's home screen or they don't remember to ask for the Alexa skill, then the product will not be used and it's, it might as well not even exist. So I had that hypothesis back then, but, but the problem back then was not that people are overusing products <laughs> like Facebook and Instagram and Google, et cetera. The problem back then was that we had all this great technology and nobody was using it, right? That, that, that was everybody's problem of, you know, how do I get people to use my product? And so that's why I wrote, wrote Hooked. And I, I would argue that's still the problem. It's still for the vast majority of businesses out there, their problem is that nobody uses it. The, the ones who win currently are not necessarily the, the best things for you. It's not necessarily organic food and exercise. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and you know, that, that's kind of the promise of uh, habit-forming technology. I didn't write Hooked for Facebook and Google and the gaming companies, they already know these techniques they have for years. I wrote the book for everybody else. I wanted to democratize, you know, what if we could use the same psychology to make enterprise software interesting and, and something you wanted to use as opposed to something you felt like you had to use? Uh, what if we could help people exercise and save money and live healthier lives by building these healthy habits? And, and thankfully, in the past five years, you know, countless companies have used these techniques for good. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. So you wrote this book, uh, the book Hooked for uh, Products, uh, for how to build products. And now you're writing a book on how uh, that's more user-oriented, how to, to 
uh, indestructible, how to, to control your attention and choose your life. And this also is something that is uh, translatable to anyone building a website, right? Because uh, that's really our audience. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, for hooked, it's for any product that's used with sufficient frequency. The idea is that, uh, you know, if you're building any kind of experience, whether it's online or offline, whether it's an app, whether it's a website, whether it's a, any kind of customer experience that you want people to engage with frequently. Now, some products just don't meet that requirement, right? So for example, car insurance, you don't keep buying car insurance. You don't keep using car insurance. You, you buy it once and then you don't use it until, you know, God forbid something terrible happens. So that's not the kind of product that you should build a habit around. And there's nothing wrong with products that don't have habits. They're perfectly good businesses. The problem is, however, that you're constantly fighting on price and features and price and features, right? So if, if Geico says, hey, 15 minutes will save you 15% on car insurance, well, then somebody else comes along and says, oh, yeah, well, you know, 12 minutes will save you 20%. And so that's how most products in the market operate. They're constantly beating each other up on price and features. Instead of loyalty and, uh, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Habit-forming products, like take Google. When was the last time you stopped yourself and said, hmm, I wonder who makes the best search engine? You know, we don't even give Bing a chance, the number two search engine. We don't even try because we've formed a habit, not because Google is better. In fact, you know, third-party studies show that Google versus being head-to-head, if you don't know which product you're using, it's about a 50-50 preference. So Google is not better than other search engines. We just have a habit of using it. That's all that keeps us coming back. And so what? how amazing would it be if you didn't have to spend all this money in advertising and spammy messages to get people to use your product? What if they used it on their own because they wanted to, not because they had to? So you actually have a, a great formula for habit-forming uh, uh, products uh, which I, I found really interesting. And uh, really, I had to listen to it uh, two times to form its own habit in my brain. <laughs> so can you go uh, over the, the, the four steps? Sure, sure. So it's called the hooked model. And the hooked model is this four-step process designed into the user experience. It's built in. Remember, you know, growth is something you can buy. You can buy a bunch of users. You just buy a bunch of ads on Google or Facebook or wherever, and you can drive traffic try the product. The problem is you can't buy retention. You can't buy engagement. You can't buy a habit. It has to be designed into the product. So if you're an agency out there and you're pitching you know, business for, for one of your clients, this can be a real competitive advantage because there's not that many agencies that understand how to build products for their clients in a way that creates a habit. And, and here's the secret. So in my years of teaching at Stanford, uh, in my years of researching the psychology of habit-forming products, What I found is that we have this model that we see repeated time and time again. If you think of any habit-forming product, you will find these four basic steps of a trigger, an action, a reward, and finally, an investment. And it's through successive cycles, through these hooks, it's built into the user experience. This is how customer preferences are shaped, how our tastes are formed, and how these habits are are, are shaped in our lives. So if we take an example of uh, I'm building a website, for myself as a, you know with the portfolio and all that how can i create the, those four steps to make sure my audience is uh, my potential website clients are hooked 
Sure. So first we have to make sure that it's like the kind of product that you can build a habit around that occurs with sufficient frequency. So the first question, the, the number one reason that I tell a company, hey, I'm sorry, I don't think that the product will be habit forming is if it doesn't occur with sufficient frequency. So that's kind of the, the baseline test. And, the, and the, the, the bar is about a week's time or less. If the behavior does not occur within a week's time or less, it's very hard to change a consumer habit. Now, you know, sometimes when I meet with e-commerce companies that the, or companies where a, a behavior doesn't occur frequently enough, I have to tell them, don't make the buying the habit. That's never going to become a habit. A habit, by definition, is a behavior that occurs with little or no conscious thought. So the buying will never be the habit. And the problem is with a lot of e-commerce, I'm sorry to pick on e-commerce, but you know, the problem with a lot of e-commerce companies out there is that they're so focused on getting people to check out and they totally miss this opportunity to get people to check in. So what you have to do is to find something around your product experience. This is the first step before you even get into the hook model is what's the behavior, what's the action, what's the habit that we want to occur with little or no conscious thought. Check a website, scroll a feed, push a play button, whatever it might be. What's that habit that we want to create in the user's mind? So after we pick that behavior, the first step is to ask ourselves, what's the internal trigger and the external trigger? The external trigger is something in our environment that tells us what to do next. It's a ping, a ding, a ring, a thing, something that put, that prompts you to action with some information in your environment, right? So, you know, it's an email, it's a notification, it's something that tells you what to do next. Then you have the action phase. The action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. Check a website, scroll a feed, whatever it might be, the simplest thing that you can get the user to do like a call to action uh, button or? Well, the, the call to action button is the external trigger. Pushing the button is the action, right? Going to the website, scrolling the feed, that would be the action. Mm -hmm. Now comes the interesting part, the variable reward. So this is once the user is on the site or in the app or whatever the experience might be, we have to offer them some kind of reward, but not just any kind of reward. We want to give them a variable reward. What we see is at the heart of the psychology of why we use products like Slack and Instagram and WhatsApp and uh, Snapchat and all of these products, what's at the heart of the behavior is this, is this search for variable rewards, intermittent reinforcement. So this comes out of the work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. You know, In the 1950s, he took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, and he gave them a little disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at the disc, they would get a little reward, a little food pellet. And what Skinner observed was that he could teach the, pillet, the, the pigeons to peck at the disc if they were hungry on a regular schedule, right? By pecking the disc, get a reward. But then when he gave them the food pellets on a variable schedule, he actually saw that they pecked more often, right? So sometimes they would get a food pellet, sometimes they wouldn't get a food pellet. That increased their rate of response. And so we see this mechanic you know, we see it in slot machines. We see it in what makes sports fun to watch, what makes a movie interesting, what makes a novel fun, what makes romance romantic, and what makes a website or an app engaging are these variable rewards. And there's these different types of variable rewards, which we can discuss if you want to get into more detail. But then just to finish up the four steps of the hook, the last step is the investment phase. And this is really important. This is what's really revolutionary about businesses that are coming online. And, you know, today, Every business is an online business. There's no business that doesn't have some kind of, of online presence, or at least you know, <laughs> should have some kind of online presence. The difference is that many companies just put information out into the world, right? Or they, they have some kind of customer outreach. But what they don't do is they miss this investment phase. And the investment phase is where the user puts something into the product 
to make it better with use through the form of data, content, followers, reputation, skill, something that makes the product better and better and better with use. And this is really revolutionary. This is a really big idea because what we find is if you can get the customer to put something into the product and then you have a mechanism in place to improve the product with use, you are co-creating the product with your user and you're greatly increasing the odds of generating repeat engagement and habits. So that critical fourth step of investment is, is absolutely very, very important and oftentimes overlooked. Now, if you can do that, if you can take users through the trigger, the action, the reward investment frequently enough, eventually what you will do is you'll begin to form an association with an internal trigger. We talked about the very beginning external triggers, right? The pings, the dings, the rings, all these external triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states. And anyone in business, you know, far too few people in business understand this basic principle of consumer psychology, which says that all human behavior is motivated by the desire to escape discomfort. And so the goal of a habit-forming product, in fact, the goal of any product, the only reason that people buy from you, visit you, work with you, talk to you, give you money, the only reason is to satiate pain. And so what you want to do is to figure out what's that frequently occurring pain point in their lives. What's the itch, the internal trigger that you can attach your products used to? So for Facebook, it's loneliness, seeking connection. For feeling uncertain about something before we scan our brains, we Google it. If we're bored, we go to YouTube, we go to Reddit, we check stock prices, sports scores, the news. Every single product you use carves out an emotional niche in the consumer's brain. And that's your job if you're going to build a habit-forming product. So is it safe to say that if uh, my business is building websites, then the, the frust- maybe the frustration of, of the site owner with uh, a bug on WordPress or whatnot, and me stepping in to help them can be the kind of the, the reason and the, the habit-forming uh, reason why they, they can get hooked? Sure. Well, that's probably already the case, right? That for many people out there, uh, if, you, if you work with clients and you build their websites, they already have the association in their brain that when something breaks, I email you, I call you. Now, I don't know if that's the business you want to be in <laughs> because that might not be the habit you want, right? It's expensive to deal with customer service requests all the time. But uh, you know, I would say where this is most useful is to figure out how to build the kind of products for your clients that can help them form habits with their customers. You know, Very few people out there understand how important it is to design with consumer psychology in mind. It's not good enough to just understand how to make people click. You have to understand how to, what makes them tick. And if you can do that, if you can bring to your clients this new approach of how to build with, with these you know, very established, very well-researched techniques of consumer psychology to design for habits, I think that's a real differentiator out there in the marketplace. Well, I think that one of the main problems that businesses have is kind of also staying consistent because if you want your audience to stay hooked on your, on your, you know, I don't know, your blog or your feed, you have to be consistent yourself with the posts you create and, and the type of, of marketing channels that you use. So how can, can, can you know, the, the once, let's say I decided that the way I'm going to let's say hook my client is uh, through I know one, one technique that many use is like uh, you know posting on on frequent posting 
Right. So that, that's, a, that's a good idea. The idea, you know, the idea is that if you don't have a product that's used frequently enough, so let's say, for example, you sell website design services. Well, that's not a product that will ever be bought out of habit, right? Nobody does that with little or no conscious thought the way you would open Facebook or Instagram or, you know, YouTube, that's never going to happen. But what could become a habit is a content consumption habit. So you can actually, if your product itself isn't used frequently enough, what you can do is bolt on experiences which are habit forming, which are used frequently enough, for example, content and community. So if you create uh, you know, a website or a, a newsletter or something that provides content to your customers, that can become a habit. That could be something that they open with little or no conscious thought and engage with frequently enough so that the result of that engagement will eventually be monetization. Yes, that makes sense. So, I mean, how can you understand, let's say I'm helping my client try to form this habit uh, in their user's uh, you know, routine. How can I understand first what are my user's habits, my audience's habits? Yeah, you mean for, for if you're designing a website or an app for your client, how can you, you, you can figure out your client's client's habit? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> We're getting to a loop, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's very important. I, mean, I think this is the real differentiator out there. If you can do this, this is something that most people can't do. Uh, and, and your client will ultimately be much more successful for it. If you can say, look, you know, the, the most expensive part of your business is acquiring customers. And why the hell, after you've acquired a customer, would we be stupid enough to lose that user, right? It's much more economical to, to keep a user than it is to acquire a new user. So Let's take, let's even take a, an example of, uh, you know, uh, a car, uh, you know, a secondhand car, uh, car salesman or secondhand uh, car salesman. Yeah. So, so buying a car will never be a habit. So that's not what we pitch because it doesn't occur with sufficient frequency, right? That's not something that will occur with little or no conscious thought. But if we can design a customer loyalty program for people who are prospective customers or former customers, that's a huge opportunity. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many car dealerships, it's funny you should say that, totally drop the ball when it comes to customer loyalty, right? Simple, stupid things. Like, for example, you know, if you lease a car, they know they have the information, they have the investment. We talked about the investment phase earlier of data around when your lease is expired. Well, there should be a program to proactively reach out to you before your lease is, is due for renewal. And that's where you would load the next trigger. You would provide a program for, for, to keep them updated, you know, not the month before, but a good year before. You want to send them content, connect them with a the community. Those are two ways. You know, I call them the two C's. The co content and community are things that you can bolt on to an experience that doesn't occur with sufficient frequency to be habit-forming. So they're not going to buy the car out of habit. But what they could do is consume content habitually, right? I mean, I, you know, when I, uh, I live in New York City now, so I don't own a car anymore. But when I lived in the Bay Area and I, I owned uh, a car, I would get these stupid newsletters with nothing interesting or useful. It was all about bring your car in for, for repair. Here's a yet another stupid coupon that I don't want to use. What if there was information that was actually useful to me, right? What if they had some demographic information that, you know, I have a little, a little girl and they could provide me information about here's fun things you could do in the community this weekend. That would create a habit for me to open these emails, to check a website habitually. What if they connected me with other people 
who had my same uh, make and model of car, and we were kind of like-minded people, right? People who drive similar cars also tend to have similar demographic information. Maybe you could connect them together. You could you could uh, have some kind of community relationship. It's it's something that actually a surprising number of companies can do well if they're conscious about it. So one example for you know for example you say well, why would people want to get together over their car? It's not such a crazy thing. If you think about uh, the Hallmark Keepsake Ornament Club, Hallmark is this, is this company that produces Christmas ornaments. And that's something that's only bought you know, maximum once a year. And yet you will find people lined up in front of Hallmark stores in the middle of July buying Christmas ornaments. Well, why is that? It's because they didn't show up for the Christmas ornaments. They showed up for the community right? People are desperate these days. As less people go to church and synagogue and mosque these days, you know, the world has become more secular. They are desperate for community of like-minded people. And that is something that we can provide people and create a habit out of community. And then of course the Bible, you know, we don't do a hard sell. We, what we do is we provide them value so that eventually the result of all that engagement is eventual monetization. And the good news is, is that we can fulfill all that stuff. We can facilitate these behaviors through technology, through a well-designed app or website. Yeah, and you mentioned coupons before. So how? what's the good? I mean, that counts under the variable reward, right? It can. So that would be uh, variable rewards of the hunt. So variable rewards of the hunt are, is about the search for material rewards, information rewards. And coupons are the high fructose corn syrup <laughs> of the business world. In that they can, you know, they, they give you kind of a sugar rush. <laughs> you can see immediate effects, but I would argue that it is way overused and ultimately very unhealthy for a business. Uh, because what you're doing is you're training a customer segment to always expect that reward. Yeah, habituation to a lower price. Exactly. And so, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. If you go to uh, Bed Bath and Beyond and pay full price, you're a goddamn idiot. Because, you know, they send you coupons all the time. You're like, you, you would never go there without a coupon. You can't miss it, yeah. You can't miss it. And so what they've done, and, and the, the sad thing is that, that this is a form of, of retention that is effective, but is extremely expensive, right? You are, it's coming directly from the bottom line. Whereas creating a habit around community, around content, around information rewards. There's all these other variable rewards that we can use that cost you nothing, right? They don't cost you a dime. They cost you the effort of designing a quality product. So it's not that coupons don't work. It's that they can train the wrong behavior and they are very expensive because once you start people expecting a coupon, it's very hard then to go back and stop offering those discounts and deals. They'll wait for them. Uh, I want to switch gears and talk about the other side, meaning... Uh, I mean, uh, the people who get distracted, I mean, the, the client uh, side and how they can fight uh, because people who are uh, working with uh, their computer and they have, you know, the infinite distractions, they also need tools to, to you know, to fight off and, and focus on work. Yeah. So uh, what are your, uh, to, uh, your tools and, and tips for that? Yeah, so this is this is kind of a sneak peek for my uh, next book, which comes out in uh, September 2019. It's uh, it's called Indistractable. It's it's uh, Indistractable: How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And the idea is that uh, I wrote this book because we have this. We live in this new era where some products are so well designed 
that it's hard to stop using them. <laughs> so I wrote the book, not, not for product designers. Hooked was written for product designers. Indistractable is uh, really my own personal journey of how I found myself getting hooked to, to certain products. And, and I was distracted. And I, 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 I went out there and I bought every book on distraction to try and understand, oh my God, you know, how do I break this bad habit that I formed? And originally I thought, well, I'm going to write Unhooked. I'm going to write kind of the mea culpa of my first book. But then the more I researched it, I realized that, you know, distraction has been around for a really long time. Facebook and Google didn't, didn't invent distraction. Socrates and Aristotle talked about akrasia, this tendency that we have to do things against our better interests. They talked about this 2,500 years ago. And what I thought would be a book about digital distraction ended up being a book about the psychology of all distraction. Because frankly, if it's not, you know, if it's Facebook today, it was TV yesterday, it was radio before that. And in the future, we'll have some different distractions as well. So I really wanted to get to the heart of, you know, why do we get distracted? And the reason is that these companies are not going away, first of all. Second, we, you know, every book out there about this topic, about how to be productive, how to stay focused, is written by some professor who doesn't even have a social media account. Some of them don't even have email accounts. So that, that, that kind of, that's, you know, okay, it's great for you. That's not the kind of luxury I have. I, I have to use these kind of products for my livelihood. And then third, they didn't delve into the deeper psychology. And I, I felt like when I, when I read the, the current wisdom on how to deal with distraction, none of them were written by anybody who actually built these products. And my advantage is that I know the Achilles heel. I know how these products are built to hook you. I wrote the book on it. And so when I came to it with that knowledge, I realized that I, I had some, some special wisdom that I could impart and that I used in my own life, uh, starting with tackling those internal triggers. So as well-designed as these products are, if you don't have the internal trigger, if you don't have that itch or you figured out a way to deal with it in a healthier manner, there's nothing they can do to get you. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the skills to deal with those internal triggers, those psychological states that are uncomfortable, they are going to get you. So I, I think the world is really bifurcating into, into people who have the knowledge for how to deal with distraction uh, and who become indistractable, and then everybody else who's basically going to be at the mercy of letting companies you know, control their, their, their behaviors because they don't control them for themselves. Well, I, I see that, I mean, I think there's, an, you know, common culprits for distraction, you know, the Facebook feed and, uh, you know, the, the, the notifications on your phone. And myself, I, I, I also fall prey to that. So I use tools like, uh, you know, uh, news, Facebook news feed, the eradicator. Do you know this one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I recommend that in my book. And I, I recently just deleted all my apps from my home screen. So nothing is, is uh, almost all my apps from my phone's uh, home screen. So nothing is uh, at reach to, to... Excellent. But I, I was wondering, is there also a way to get distracted by too much consumption of a good thing? I mean, because I, I'll tell you the, the story I, I'm talking about. Uh, I used to... Uh, I might have the, the personality of someone who gets uh, hooked, uh, but uh, I used to be, uh, I had a phase where I was really into, you know, um, I would say the, the um, self-help uh, podcasts. And it, at one time I felt like, like I was listening to so many podcasts about uh, marketing and, and self-help that they stopped helping. <laughs> I just stopped completely. So my question is, how do you, as a consumer, kind of find out uh, the right balance between, okay, I'm improving my skills, my, my, my life, basically, 
or I'm trying, uh, I'm turning into, you know, a consumer of that. Right. So it starts with what is the definition of distraction? And this is, this is a critical distinction. How do you know the difference between what is distraction and what is not distraction? So what's the opposite of distraction is traction, right? We have traction and we have distraction. Traction is any act that moves you forward in life, moves you, is what you intended to do, what you want to do. It's moving you towards your, your, your best interests. A distraction is anything that's not that, anything that moves you off course. But how do you know minute to minute, day to day, what is traction and what is distraction, right? You get to work and you say, oh my God, I really got to work on this big project and I really got to focus. I got to sit down and not, not check email, not check Slack and just do my work. And yet you say, you know, you sit down at your desk and then five, 10, 20 minutes later, maybe an hour later, this happened to me all the time before I, I figured it out. I, I'd start checking email for just a quick minute or, or, you know, just see something real quick. I just need to Google something. And then, you know, an hour later, I was still doing that and I hadn't done what I intended to do. So this is a critical part of, of the book is where I talk about how the only way to tell the difference between traction and distraction is to plan ahead that you have to define for you what it is you want to do with your time. I, I can't tell you how many people I've worked with helping them deal with distraction. They'd say, oh my God, the world is so distracting and Facebook this and Google that and Trump said this and I just can't concentrate. And I say, well, what, let me see what it is you got distracted from. What's on your schedule? What's on your calendar for the day that you got distracted from? And they take out their calendar and there's nothing on it. It's blank. Turns out that only 10% of people keep a calendar and even fewer keep what's called a time box calendar. And this is in this day and age critical that you have to define how you want to spend every minute of your day. Now it sounds shocking. I'm telling you, it's really not that hard and it's a critical skill. It's something that all of us have to do because if you don't do that, everything is a potential distraction, right? And things that seem healthy, seem good, end up being distractions. So for example, you know, checking email. Well, that, well, that seems productive. I need to do that anyway, right? That's a businessy thing. No, at the wrong time and place, when you're with your kids, when you're with your family, when you have a big project that you need to work on, even checking email is a bad thing. Like you said, right? Self-help is a good thing. But if you do it for five, six hours a day when you intended to do work or do other stuff, well, then it's a bad thing. So the idea is to schedule your time. You know, every other tech critic out there tells you, you know, go on a digital detox, get rid of Facebook, digital minimalism, get rid of it for 30 days. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because that's not the answer. It's like a fad diet, right? If you say, that's it, I'm going to fast for seven days so I can lose weight, you know what happens at the end of the fast. You eat like crazy when it, when it comes back. So the idea instead is to budget the time. There's nothing wrong with checking Facebook every single day, but make time for it. So on my schedule, it, I have time for social media. I have time for audiobooks. I have time to work out. I have time with my kids scheduled on my calendar as a template. Now, Sometimes I go over time, I go under time, I don't exactly stick to it, you know, to the T, but the idea is that you have it as a template. So for the first time in your life, you will be able to tell yourself, ah, I see the difference between traction and distraction. Traction is what I wanted to do. It's what I did with intent and distraction is anything else. So basically, you, the, the, at the end result, you, you need to look at the calendar and see a vast improvement from this month's, uh, you know, check the things that you did that you're proud of and uh, last month. Well, I, I do it every week, but it, it really depends on, on how frequently your schedule changes. So if your schedule, you know, some people, they have such erratic schedules, it changes every day. 
And so they need to recheck this calendar. And you have, by the way, a critical, there's a lot in the book, right? It's a, it's, it's a over 200 page book. So there's lots of these techniques. And so I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of it, but a crucial step is synchronizing your schedule with the stakeholders in your life, with your family, with your boss, with your colleagues, so that you can, you set expectations around the inputs in your life. The, the major input in your life is your time. But that's not how most people think about their time. Most people just think about the output. And so they put all their stuff on a to-do. I used to make this mistake for years. I had a to-do list and I put stuff in the to-do list and I magically expected that stuff to get done. It doesn't work that way, right? And you, you know as well as I do that you, know, you, you have a to-do list and you put some stuff on it and half of it doesn't get done. It gets rolled over to the next day, the next day, the next day. The only way is to focus on the input, not on the output. And the only thing you control is your time. So you've got to be able to put that time on your calendar and then recheck that calendar. I do it every week. Some people do it once a month. Some people do it every day. It depends on how frequently your calendar changes. Do you think this is because we see ourselves as kind of uh, omnipotent and we think we can you know, look at the to-do list and, and quickly check off things, but... But actually, our mind works. It's not that multitasking. You can either think about meta, what you're doing, or doing it, or you kind of have to switch between those things. And we're not that good at that switching. You think that's why we get hooked? We just don't have the skills. We just have not learned the skill set to deal with this age where there are so many potential distractions. You know, it used to be that people had time to get bored, time to just do nothing to let their minds wander. And unfortunately, we live in an age where that has to be scheduled or it's not going to happen. And, and that's totally fine, by the way. So my Saturdays, for example, I have huge swaths of time in, on Saturdays to be bored, right? That's okay. But that time is held back. I want time in my schedule to have that, that uh, whatever it is that I want to accomplish, whether you want to meditate, whether you want to pray, whether you want to be bored, whether you want to go on a walk, whether you want to check Facebook or YouTube, that time has to be reserved because it's not going to magically appear anymore because we live in an age where we always can turn to distraction. Whenever we feel that ting of boredom, we always have our cell phones with us. And so therefore we will always respond by looking for escape from boredom with these devices. And again, there's nothing wrong with the products. The idea is how do we get the best of technology without letting it get the best of us? So I have to ask something that I heard in another podcast that you, you were in <laughs> that I found simply amazing, uh, which is the two techniques that I heard. Uh, one is the switcher that shuts down your internet connection. Yeah. The other is pocket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So these are, yeah, these are, so, so I, I, it took me about five years to write Indistractable because I've been collecting all these techniques and a lot of them didn't work. So I didn't include them. So everything in the book works. You know, it's, it's a very autobiographical uh, a reference, you know, a, a account of, of how I've struggled with distraction. And, you know, I, I have to say, I don't want to, I don't want to brag, but I have to say that, you know, today using these techniques, I'm in the best shape of my life. I've never enjoyed working out until the past couple of years. Uh, it's finally, I, I like fitness. Uh, and I make time for it regularly. Uh, I have a better relationship with my family. I have a better. I, I work more efficiently. I'm more productive. And part of what I reveal in this book is the effect that uh, too much technology had on my sex life. And the effect it had was that you know every night my wife and I would go to bed, and we've been married for a long time now. We've been married for about 18 years. And every night, instead of you know, we, we would go to bed and we would find ourselves fondling not each other not caressing each other, we would be caressing our devices, her with her iPad and me with my iPhone. 
And so I knew that something had to change. I mean, it was really taking a toll on my marriage. And I think a lot of couples who've been married for a long time have experienced this. And so we needed to take action. So I figured out one, one of the tricks that I talk about in the book is idea I got to buy a, an internet, uh, I'm sorry, to buy a, a timer, an outlet timer, that anything you plug into this outlet timer will turn off the electricity to whatever you plug in at a certain time of day or night. So in my household, at 10 p.m., the internet shuts off, right? Every night, 10 p.m. You don't have nothing, you don't, every night, that's what turns, oh, a weeknight. Complete uh, meltdown, yeah. Right, or not, uh, just on weeknights. On weekends, we can stay up late and watch Netflix or whatever, uh, because that's time that's budgeted for that. But on weeknights, we made it a priority for our sleep, for our sanity, and for our sex life. We have the internet turn off at 10 p.m. Amazing. And, uh, and Pocket? Yeah, and Pocket is, is another great hack. So I talk about in the book how to hack back these external triggers. Uh, you know, in Hooked, I, I, I talked about how behavioral designers uh, hack our behavior with these external triggers to get us to do what the app designers want us to do. But one of the simple things we can do is to hack back those external triggers. And so I talk about how I set a rule for myself to no longer get sucked in to the content vortex that we all find online. You know, I would start reading an article online and I uh, just read one quick article. And then one article would turn into two articles, three articles, and then 45 minutes later, what the hell? You know, I just wasted all this time reading article after article after article. And, and you, you, you lie to yourself and say, well, I'm reading the New York Times. I'm educating myself. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an educated citizen. It's bullshit. You're, you're making up an excuse, <laughs> right? At least I certainly did. That I was, you know, wasting all this time when what I really wanted to do was to write or to work or do what I planned to do instead of catching up on, on the news to avoid the discomfort of having to do my work. So I have a rule that I do not read articles on my desktop. I never read articles on the open web. Every time I see an article I want to read, I save it to this app called Pocket, uh, which is a terrific app. Basically, I have this little Chrome extension that, that is in your browser. You hit the button and it scrubs all the text from that article and it puts it into this app on your phone. Now, that's half the battle, right? So the cool thing is I don't waste any more time online because if I see an article I think is interesting, I'll read it, but I'm not going to read it right there. I'm going to read it later when I have time in my schedule to do that. Now, there's a double bonus here because there's techni this technique called temptation bundling. And temptation bundling has been shown, there's been several studies on this, as it's in a very effective technique to use the reward of one thing to entice you to do something else. So I mentioned that you know, now for the first time in my life, I, I'm actually, I enjoy physical fitness. I enjoy going to the gym for the first time in my life. I've never been athletic before. And part of the way I got myself to do that was that my reward for going to the gym is that I get to listen to these articles that I previously saved. Yeah. So I open the Pocket app. It has this function that it will read the articles to you. In fact, I, I use another app called VoiceStream that does even a better job, that, but it pulls from Pocket and it reads with a much better voice. And it, it reads the articles to you with kind of like a little bit of a Siri voice, but it's actually much better. And so that's my reward is I get to listen to these articles as I'm in the gym. So I've taken the reward from something that used to distract me, and now I've turned it into an act of traction because I'm in the gym doing something I want to do that's healthy for me while I'm, I'm listening to these articles. That's amazing. And I actually tried it and uh, after listening to, uh, to you. So, uh, and it works and it's, uh, it's a great technique. Good. I'm glad. I'm so glad it helped you. Well, we're getting to the end of the interview. And um, how can people uh, reach you and contact you and uh, 
and follow you and get hooked. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So my first book is Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. So if you're building habit-forming products, if you're looking for ways to make products more engaging, to increase user retention, check that out. That's available wherever books are sold. And uh, my next book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And that will be published in September 2019. And if you want to be updated about this, and there's all kinds of free resources on my website, my website is near and far, near spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far, near and far.com. Great. And uh, near, it's, it's been really interesting. And uh, I think that uh, we're always looking for people that uh, kind of give for this podcast, for people that uh, can give tools to deal with distractions, both in terms of uh, the workflow and in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the focus on your work and in terms of engaging customers in this age of distraction. And I think you hit the nail on this, on this uh, topic. I'm glad. I'm glad it's helpful. I, I, I would, and it, as your listeners use this stuff, I would love to hear back feedback, what works, what doesn't. You know, there's so many new tools coming online all the time that I'm kind of creating a repository of the best tools on my website at uh, nearandfar.com backslash indistractable. Okay, so uh, Nir, you, you've been a great uh, guest of ours and uh, I hope you'll uh, return in the future. Absolutely. So thank you very much. And uh, everyone who listened, thank you also. Don't forget to share and like and subscribe and hopefully you'll get hooked to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, until next time, goodbye.